everyone, it's Pacific. And apologies for the two-week gap. Uh, we had a lot going on behind the scenes. But we do have a whole month of exciting episodes ahead of us. Just a quick reminder, if you like the show and you like what we do here, the best way to support our show is by telling a friend or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are some of the best ways to get our shows into the ears of new listeners. Aside from that, not too much to talk about. We did recently bring on a new writer, Henry Galley, uh, who you heard on our last episode, Sonny Bean. Um, Henry is a wonderful addition to our team, and we're very excited to have him. And this month, you can expect even more stories from him. Aside from that, not too much to talk about, so I'm going to let you guys get to this week's episode. So, without further ado, enjoy. In 2005, Sissy Spacek, famous for her brilliant, blood-soaked performance in De Palma's adaption of Stephen King's Carrie, returned to the world of horror cinema with An American Haunting. The film was written and directed by Courtney Solomon and boasted an all-star cast including Donald Sutherland, James Darcy, and Rachel Hurd Wood. The film was based on the novel The Bell Witch, An American Haunting by Brett Monahan, which claimed in turn to be based on a real American legend. The film was met with harsh criticism that acknowledged its polished look and capable acting, but asked, wasn't it supposed to be scary? Sadly, audiences and critics alike just didn't get the thrills and chills they were expecting from an American haunting, which is a real shame because the legend of the heart of the film is richer, deeper, and much more terrifying than anything that made it on screen. It's a story about fear in rural America, a family driven to the edge and a curse that has lingered for generations and kept an icy grip on the land where it was born. Today, we're going back over 200 years to Adams, Tennessee, the site of the most well-documented haunting in all of American history. This is the story of the Bell Witch. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. In 1804, a man named John Bell moved his wife Lucy and their children to a stately farmhouse in Tennessee, about 50 miles north of Nashville. It was a gorgeous property, surrounded by 100 acres of fertile land, and the crown jewel of the estate was the house. It was a sturdy log house, standing at one and a half stories high with six rooms and a large front porch where John, Lucy, and their little ones could sit and take in the fresh country air. Lucy and John filled the house with nine children and a great deal of love and care. The Bell family quickly became a respected fixture in the community, garnering a reputation for being good, decent people. Things were pleasant, if uneventful, for over a decade as the Bell family built a proper life in that house. But in 1817, something changed. The placid life of the Bell family began to splinter and crack until one day, their peace broke apart completely leaving only jagged edges and fearful whispers behind. John Bell was tending to his crops one day, his brow growing sweaty in the Tennessee heat, his body growing heavy with the exertion of a good day's work, when something moved in his peripheral vision. It was dark and quick, moving on all fours across the field several feet away. At first he thought it was a dog, perhaps a stray or a neighbor's pet that had gotten loose and wandered a bit too far from home. But as the creature approached, John's stomach swam with unease. Something about this dog looked wrong. Below the neck, everything was ordinary, just a shaggy black dog running through a field in the sun. 
but its head was a different story. Its ears were unnaturally long, sticking up in the air. Its face didn't taper into a canine snout, but rounded, with full cheeks and a twitching little nose. Whatever this thing was that had decided to cross his path, it had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. John rubbed at his eyes, uncertain of what he was seeing. Was it real? Or had the long day outside gotten to him, played tricks on his perception? When he opened his eyes, the beast was gone. He decided to put it out of his mind, instead choosing to finish up his work and go inside to spend a lovely evening with his family. They ate supper, talked about their days, and the children played lively games in the front room until it was time for bed. Some hours later, John and Lucy were woken from a blissful sleep by the children, who complained of bad dreams and a scratching sound outside. Something, they said, was bumping and scratching at the doors and the windows. John and Lucy comforted the children, promising that there was nothing outside. The noise was simply the wind, blowing the branches of the family's beloved pear tree and causing them to brush and bump against the house. There was absolutely nothing to be afraid of. This became the family routine for the next several weeks. They would go to bed, there would be strange sounds outside, scrambling and scratching, thumping along the wooden walls, and they would all brush it off as the wind in the trees, nothing more. But one Sunday night, the Bell children were awoken by something with no logical explanation. Richard Williams Bell was sound asleep in an upstairs bedroom which he shared with three of his brothers when he was jolted awake by a peculiar sound. It was a fervent, animalistic chewing, the wet crunch of teeth on wood, like a rat gnawing on the bedpost. Afraid that an animal had gotten into the room, Richard shook one of his brothers awake and the two decided to investigate and chase the vermin outside. They lit a candle to get a better look, but as soon as the wick came to life and a warm glow engulfed the room, the noise stopped. There was no skittering of tiny legs, no rat darting back into the shadows. There was simply silence and an empty room. Whatever had been making that strange gnawing sound, it had disappeared without a trace. The next night, the sound was back, that same chewing that seemed to come from the bedpost. As soon as a candle was lit, the sound would stop. This time, however, it didn't disappear entirely. Instead, the boys could hear it coming from outside in the hall. When they followed it, it moved to the room next over, then the next, all the way through the house, running from the firelight, until every person was woken up and there were no more shadows it could hide in. This happened night after night, the family growing more exhausted and unsettled with each passing day. Nights at the Bell family home had once been time for rest and respite, but now... There were time for lying awake, shivering and listening for whatever horrors might come next to shake them from their beds. Soon, other sounds came. The scratching of an animal's claws at the door, begging to be let inside or else it would tear through the wood in desperation. The thunderous crash of large, heavy stones dropping onto the floor. The rattle of chains being dragged across the ground. Most disturbingly, the sounds of an invisible mouth licking and smacking its lips and the horrible gasp of someone choking, their lungs fighting for a final gulp of air. But the Bell's new uninvited house guest didn't stop at unpleasant noises in the dead of night. Like all terrible things left unchecked, it only got worse. The children would wake up shivering as something pulled the covers off the foot of their beds. Then it got violent. Screams of pain would wake the whole house as the invisible tormentor pulled at the children's hair yanking as hard as it could until tears of pain and fear stained their pillowcases. All the while, the family was afraid to speak out. 
It was a small, devout Baptist community, and no one wanted to be the potentially demonic blight on the town's pristine face. When the invisible entity started causing physical harm to his children, John Bell reached his breaking point. Reputation be damned, he needed help. He needed a neighbor, a friend. He reached out to James Johnson, his closest friend in the area, and invited him and his wife to spend the night and see the ghostly spectacle for themselves. The Johnsons arrived at supper time and the families dined together, passing the time with friendly conversation as the sun dipped below the horizon. They could almost forget the horrors that awaited them after nightfall. Almost. Then it was time to go to sleep, or at least attempt to get some rest in spite of the violent apparitions skulking through the darkened house. Everyone slept for only a few hours before the activity started up. It was almost as if the entity was putting on a show for the visitors, pulling out all of the stops. There was that familiar chewing sound, a knocking on the walls, scratching on the doors, the smacking, choking, gasping from unseen mouths. Chairs were knocked to the floor with a crash, blankets yanked from beds. Elizabeth, or Betsy Bell, got the worst of the spirit's punishment. It slapped her face again and again until her cheeks were red and painful. The awful smack of palm on skin reverberating through the halls along with Betsy's cries. The assault continued until morning when the thoroughly shaken Johnsons returned to their own home. Soon after, John and James met with a local preacher to discuss the matter. The three men swore to keep the haunting a secret, but the secrecy didn't last for long. Word spreads fast in a small town, especially when the story is this juicy. And only a few weeks after the Johnsons' eventful stay, it seemed as if everyone in the surrounding area knew about the strange forces on the Bell Farm. People began to visit. Strangers, neighbors, preachers, all wanting to sneak a peek at the haunted house and see if there was anything they could do. The entity seemed to both resent and revel in the attention, ramping up its activity whenever a new person stepped foot on the property. Mysterious lights drifted through the tree line like floating lamps making their way across the fields. Visitors found themselves dodging tree branches, bricks, and large rocks as something invisible threw them. The message quickly became clear. There was definitely something haunting the Bell family, and it was not going anywhere without a fight. Meanwhile, the Bells decided that, if this being was so intent on staying with them, they would at least try to communicate with it. They would walk through the house asking simple questions to determine if it was intelligent. How many people are in the room? How many horses are there in the yard? How many miles is it from here to the church? Each time, the entity would knock on the wall with the corresponding number of knocks. No matter what they asked, the answer was always correct. Once the first communication barrier was broken down, the floodgates were open. The entity couldn't just touch and knock on the walls, it could speak, too. At first, the sound was barely recognizable as a voice, a weak, crackling whistle they had to strain to hear. But the more the entity tried to speak, the clearer its voice became. It was a woman's voice, whispery but clear. What are you? was the first thing John Bell asked. I am a spirit, the voice replied. I was once very happy, but I have been disturbed. They pressed further, but the spirit was cagey about its identity. Every time a member of the family asked for more details, the story would change. One day it claimed to have come from a faraway land to bury treasure on the riverbank, one that it wanted to gift to Betsy Bell. The family followed the spirit's instructions and dug for an entire day but found nothing. When they arrived back home from their wild goose chase, the spirit mocked them and called them fools. 
Then the spirit brought up a name that they recognized. Kate Batts. The spirit said that it was a witch, and Kate Batts had sent it to torment the family. Kate Batts was a neighbor of the Bells, one who had good reason to send a malevolent spirit after them if she had the capacity. There was bad blood between her and John, and the two had fought violently over a land dispute. Rumors circulated around town that Kate might be a witch. Of course, this was a time when any woman that acted outside of societal norms was branded a witch, and Kate was known for being a bit unusual. She was eccentric and managed most of her household work alone. Whether or not the spirit truly belonged to Bats, the family took to calling it Kate. It was more than happy to answer to the name. All the while, a steady stream of visitors came to the Bell property, traveling from all over the state, and some even coming from Kentucky just to encounter the famous spirit for themselves. According to M. V. Egram's 1894 book, An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, the family had one particularly famous guest come from amidst the droves of strangers. General Andrew Jackson Ingram described the visit. General Jackson's party came from Nashville with a wagon loaded with a tent, provisions, etc., bent on a good time and much fun investigating the witch. The men were riding on horseback and were following along in the rear of the wagon as they approached near the place, discussing the matter and planning on how they were going to do up the witch. Just then, traveling over a smooth, level piece of road, the wagon halted and stuck fast. The driver popped his whip, whooped and shouted to the team and the horses pulled with all of their might, but could not move the wagon an inch. It was dead stuck as if welded to the earth. General Jackson commanded all men to dismount and put their shoulders to the wheels and give the wagon a push, but all in vain. It was a no-go. The wheels were being taken off, one at a time, and examined and found to be all right, revolving easily on the axles. General Jackson, after a few moments, thought, realizing that they were in a fix, threw up his hands, exclaiming, By the eternal boys, it is the witch. Then came the sound of a sharp metallic voice from the bushes, saying, All right, General, let the wagon move on. I will see you again tonight. The men, in bewildered astonishment, looked in every direction to see if they could discover from whence came the strange voice, but could find no explanation to the mystery. The horses then started unexpectedly of their own accord, and the wagon rolled along as light and smoothly as ever. The more people came to gawk at the spectacle, the more active the spirit became. It was as if it was performing or feeding on the fear and energy of the visitors growing stronger with every passing day. No one felt this effect more than poor Betsy Bell, who the spirit would gleefully torture every chance it got. The abuse became so regular, so violent, that the family was afraid to leave Betsy alone for even a few hours. If they did, they sincerely believed the witch might kill her. One night, in order to provide Betsy with companionship and some extra protection, two of her best friends came over to sleep by her side. The witch was already feeling mischievous upon their arrival. As if to taunt Betsy, it unlaced her shoes with unseen fingers and yanked them off her feet, throwing them across the room against the wall. The combs in her hair flew to the ground as her hair was ruffled and pulled out of place. All the while, the sound of cruel, delighted, ghostly laughter followed. After some time, the action abated, and it seemed as if the spirit had grown tired of its taunts. But sadly, it was just warming up. As soon as the girls settled in for bed, the spirit began its more aggressive nightly assault. Betsy woke from a deep sleep with a gasp, waking her friends along with her. When they asked what was wrong, she told them she felt something sharp prick her skin, like an invisible pin. 
One injury was followed by another as something pinched Betsy on her side hard enough to leave an angry purple bruise. Her friends crowded around her, hoping to somehow protect her from the poking and prodding of the invisible hands, but there was nothing they could do. The spirit wanted nothing more than to see the girl suffer, and no one could stand in its way. As her friends helplessly tried to comfort her, Betsy was slapped across the face with audible force again and again and again, tears streaming down her face. Just when it seemed she could take no more, it all stopped, and the room went silent save for the soft weeping of Betsy and her friends. The next night, the family agreed it would be best for Betsy to stay with the family of one of her friends. It would, they hoped, give her some reprieve from the endless nights as the spirit's punching bag. Instead, it was the most peaceful night the rest of the bells had since the witch first scratched at their door as the spirit followed Betsy to her friend's house. It seemed that there would be no escape for Betsy. No matter where she went, how far she ran, the witch would follow her. Betsy was not the only member of the Bell family to draw the spirit's ire. Its favorite topic of conversation with anyone who would listen was its deep, seething hatred for John Bell. Mr. Bell is a bad man, it would reportedly say. John was not the only member of the Bell family to draw the entity's ire, however. It continued to gleefully torture Betsy whenever it could. One day it announced its greatest goal and desire, one that chilled the family to their core. It was going to kill John Bell. The Bell Witch was kind to only one member of the family— John's wife Lucy. While it mocked and laughed at the rest of the bells, it spoke respectfully to Lucy and never once hurt her. One day Lucy fell ill and took to a bed with a fever. No one was sure what was wrong with her, only that she slept most of the day and had no appetite. After several days without eating, Lucy woke from a fitful sleep to the sound of the spirit's voice. Hold out your hands, it said. Too delirious to question the request, she did and miraculously found that hazelnuts were dropped into her palms from thin air. She sat the gift down next to her. "'Why won't you eat them?' the witch asked. "'I have nothing to crack them with,' Lucy explained. The spirit said nothing for a moment and there was a sudden popping sound beside her. When she looked down at the nuts, they were all cracked open and ready for her to eat. So she did, and a tiny bit of her strength came back. The next day the spirit brought her another present, a handful of fresh grapes. It fed her like this every day until she was well enough to feed herself again.' In 1820, the Bell family became anxious as John's health steadily declined. He would have dizzy spells and hours in which he could not eat or talk. He would collapse to the ground in what wouldn't be described as seizures and often described feeling as if a sharp stick had been shoved into his mouth. His condition grew steadily worse as the months wore on. The ground hardened, and the land turned dry and cold. Winter was coming, and it seemed as if it might be the last season John would ever see. The morning of December 19th, 1820, John was still sleeping when the family woke up. No one could wake him. No matter how hard they tried, he continued to slumber. John Jr. opened the cupboard, looking for the medicine that they had been giving to his father, but they couldn't find the bottle anywhere. All that he could find was a little vial with a thick, dark liquid inside. Kate took the credit immediately, laughing as the family called for a doctor. I've got him this time, the spirit cackled. He'll never get up from that bed again. Of the bottle, the witch said, I put it there. I gave old Jack a big dose of it last night when he was asleep, which fixed him. The next day, John Bell was dead, and the Bell witch finally got her greatest wish. After the funeral, the spirit's activity subsided, and the rest of the family did their very best to move on. Betsy struck up a romance with Joshua Gardner, 
a respectful young man from a good family, and after a quick, blissful courtship, the two were engaged to be married. Then, on Easter Monday, 1821, the fantasy came to a sudden end. Betsy and Joshua were on a fishing trip, celebrating the holiday and the beautiful sunny weather with a group of other happy, young couples. After very little activity and a few bites, Joshua's line suddenly went taut, pulled so tight it looked like it might snap. As he quickly rushed to reel it in, a massive fish between two and three feet long broke through the surface of the water, then disappeared back under, taking Joshua's pull with it. No one there had ever seen a fish so large, so strong. This was no ordinary fish. Then, in the midst of the chaos, Betsy heard it. The familiar voice sent a chill down her spine and brought phantom pain to her cheeks. The spirit hissed in her ear again and again. Please, Betsy Bell, don't have Joshua Gardner. She knew then that the spirit would never leave the couple alone. The only way to spare Joshua from the fate of her family would be to break the engagement. Though it broke her heart, she returned his engagement ring to him the same day. He left town and they never crossed paths again. Soon after Betsy's broken engagement, the spirit made a surprising declaration. It was going to leave the Bell Farm and return in seven years' time. Sure enough, in 1828, the strange sounds filled the house once more. However, the witch's visit was brief, lasting only long enough to warn John Bell Jr. of what the future held. In 107 years, in 1935, the witch would return and seek out John Bell's descendants. The Bell Witch never explained the nature of her grudge against John Bell and his family, but it was clear that her curse had not been broken with John's death. Up next, we learn about the lingering presence of the Bell Witch and her promise to return and torment the descendants of John Bell. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. In spite of the witch's promise, 1935 came and went without much incident. In 1937, several news outlets around Adams reported that the spirit might finally make another appearance, but aside from some reports of unusual sounds coming from the cave on the Bell property, and a group of skittish teenagers mistaking a stone for an apparition, nothing of note really happened. Though many have noted the Bell Witch's failure to return when she threatened to, others claim that there is a perfectly good reason she didn't come back. She never left. Stories of the spirit's lingering presence have persisted to this day, particularly when it comes to those with blood ties to the original Bell family. Robert Bell, a modern descendant of John Bell, has had a few encounters of his own with the Bell Witch. My first encounter, my grandmother lived four doors down from us and she lived by herself and would take a nap every afternoon, and she was awakened by a crash— and it scared her so bad she called up to the house. And I went down with my dad. I was seven years old. When the two got there, they saw dishes all over the floor, but not a single one was broken. Dad said, well, that must have been old Kate. And my grandmother said, well, I guess it was. Several other descendants of John Bell have encountered the witch over the years. In the 1970s, Carney Bell had a strange experience while near the property. I was out rabbit hunting with four of my boys in the old head farm about eight miles from the old family at Adams. One of my boys spotted a rabbit and took a shot at it. The rabbit rolled over as if it had been hit, then revived and ran off. 
We chased it into a honeysuckle thicket and lost it. I put my hand down on what I thought was an old honeysuckle stump to get my feet untangled, and when I did, I discovered it wasn't wood, but stone. We took a closer look and found we were in an old, overgrown cemetery in the middle of the field, and I had put my hand down on one of the old headstones. The carving was almost gone. We rubbed a cloud of dirt over the carving and saw the name on the stone was Joel Egbert Bell, my great-great-grandfather. I had been looking for that particular family grave for close to twenty years. Not as harrowing as the original haunting, but notable enough that Carney remembered it for decades. Lucy Butler, Lucy Bell before she was married, grew up with stories of the Bell Witch. She wholeheartedly believes in the spirit and is convinced that old Kate is not confined to the property, but instead follows the family. From strange sounds to objects moving on their own, to the witch showing her rare, friendly side to Lucy's daughter Jennifer, the presence has been a constant in her life. There's probably a lot of people that don't believe in her, and that's fine, Lucy told AP News. Everybody's got their personal opinion. I just believe it. I'm sure the stories I heard growing up helped, but I saw a lot of things. Things happened. I was there. Many residents of Adams still feel Kate's presence in the cave on the old Bell property. A resident named W.M. Eden once spotted something inexplicable while looking after the land there. There was a winter day, eight or ten years ago, for instance, when we had about three-quarters of an inch new snow. I heard somebody knocking on my front door. I looked through the window and saw the image of a figure I didn't recognize walking away from the house. I saw it walk behind a tree, but it didn't come out on the other side of the tree. I got my shotgun and went out to the back door, but when I got to the tree, there was no one there. There were no footprints in that fresh snow, either. The caves are, of course, open for tours, for anyone brave enough to check it out for themselves. There, visitors have felt a phantom touching along their back, heard footsteps behind them only to turn and find no one there, or even had their hats knocked off of their heads. No one will ever know exactly what the Bell Witch really was. Mass hysteria, a poltergeist, the manifestation of a vengeful curse. The only person out there who could really answer that question is the witch herself, and that seems to be one secret she's taking to the grave. But hey, maybe if you're ever in Adams, Tennessee, and you happen to hear footsteps just behind you, feel an invisible hand grab your arm, and hear a ghostly voice whisper in your ear, you might just get the chance to ask her yourself. Tonight's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. And our editor and musician was the incredible Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show.